A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin, and it's another week and it's another episode. And so let me tell you about today's episode. Today's episode is with electronic music royalty. It's Graham Massey of 808 State. So Graham uh, was down in London, and uh, I was lucky enough to, to, to grab an hour with him uh, at the WeWork building in uh, in East London. And uh, as you're about to find out, it was a smashing chat. Um, 808 State was was probably my, my real entrance into uh, the electronic sort of side of things that was happening in Manchester uh, around the time of the Mondays and the, the Rosies and and the explosion of, of, let's call it Manchester, right? Um, and so it was really nice to sit down and, 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 and chat all things music with Graham. And uh, before we get on with the episode, I should just do a nice shout-out to my producer, Mr. 76. Thank you very much. Uh, everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network and the head honcho over there, Mr. Scroobius Pip, who incidentally has a new podcast as well with myself and uh, my name is Ad, who does all the artwork for lots of the Distraction Pieces Network podcasts. And it's the Pod Bible podcast. So um, I'm just going to do a little shout-out to that because uh, if you're searching for, for new podcasts to listen to, then... Not only is Pod Bible the uh, only UK uh, print magazine dedicated to podcasts, it's uh, it's also got a podcast now. And each week we have three guests and they talk about their podcasts or podcasts that they like to listen to. Uh, guests so far have included No Such Thing as a Fish, Kate Thornton, Drunk Women Solving Crime, Birthday Girls House Party, Carrie Ad Lloyd. All your favourite podcasters, and they all pick some really interesting podcasts that they like to listen to and they want to recommend to you lot. So if you get a minute, go and check it out. It's only like a 20, 25-minute long podcast, little magazine-style show, um, and it's ace. But what's ace is today's episode. Not because of me, obviously, because of the guest. So please enjoy Off The Beat and Track podcast with Graham Massey. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year. And they're based in South End on Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music. And they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. In addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. 
Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. B-E-A-T-1-5. And that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk Official sponsors of Off The Beat and Track podcast. Let's get back to that podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. It me, Stu Whipping. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track podcast. It's another episode and today I'm joined by Graham Massey. Hello. Yes, we've found each other oh. in, in deepest, darkest <laughs> East London. Uh, you, you sounded genuinely lost as well when you phoned up. You were like, we don't really know London. Well, there's, yeah, it's, I don't really know my app is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Just relying on these uh, technology all the time, you, know, you can easily get lost, can't you? So. Well, I work here a couple of days a week and, and I don't know this area at all. So when you was saying where you was, I mean, you, you, I should point out to you, you said, I'm standing outside Dirty Dick's Pub. And so I then had to put that in Google. So that threw up all manner of answers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, but we found each other and we're here now. And, uh, and thanks loads for, for giving up some of your time today, mate. I really no. appreciate it. Yeah. So what are you doing down in London aside from this? Is it a bit of a promo trip? Yeah, we're doing a bit of a promo trip down here, doing lots of a, a whole day of press. And mm-hmm. Yeah, just talking about the new record, uh, which is called Transmission Suite, that we're very excited to uh, get into people's ears. You know. When's it out? It's out at the beginning of October, October the 11th. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, that's what down to shout it into people's faces. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we'll talk about that quite yeah. a lot as we, we work through this podcast. Yeah. But before we do anything, um, I always want to start this podcast um, with track one, which is the song that you say has the greatest ever intro. Yeah. And uh, it was quite a difficult question, actually, because, like, you know, I've, I, I know so much music. I'm, yeah. I'm music obsessive. And it comes from, I guess, being born in 1960, it's like a journey through music. Uh, I mean, the 60s were fabulous, but I wasn't really into music till the 70s. And the 70s was uh, a, like a golden time for all kinds of music. And I had an older brother that, that got into the prog quite um, yeah. around in the early 70s. So he was going to university and bringing all these prog records back. And, uh, you know, that's when I first started delving in, in, into What was that? Music. Yes, Gong, all of that kind yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, and the, all, all the... You know, there was an atmosphere in England at that time that English music was expanding into this thing that nobody nobody had a label for it at that yeah. point. It was just the albums that you exchanged at school. Every yeah. day you took a new album to school and swapped it with another guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and school lunchtimes, there was record players all around the school and it, it, there was a real exchange. Yeah. Even at the bus stops with kids from other schools, people yeah. were... Uh, 
you know, it was like a sort of version of the internet on the street, yeah. you know, where people were just actually sort of like delivering playlists in plastic bags. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, you, you, what could you afford then? Maybe a record a week if you was lucky. And so it would be key, wouldn't it, to have that community yeah, where you could swap, the, swap yeah, your tracks. They were expensive. And that's why certain shops popped up in the 70s, like Virgin Records. Virgin yeah. Records were... Uh, had great success early on because of their budgets, you yeah. know, and they'd put out albums that were like 50 pence. Yeah. There was a couple of albums, one being Faust Tapes by the German experimental Faust. group Faust, yeah. and one Camembert Electrique by Gong. Right. And the amount of just normal working class kids that were holding them albums and listening to this quite radical experimental music... Yeah. Uh, because of a price point was um, it was really interesting. Yeah. And I, when I first got in a band at school, the common language was those two albums. Yeah. So we started off on a journey that was um, from a very exper experimental point of view. We weren't learning, um, you know, basic rock tunes. Yeah. We were learning things in funny time signatures yeah. with a very experimental attitude. So that's where my journey began, and it's never really veered from that path really it was is a very fundamental well it was a foundation for my music making them, them kind of labels that would say pay no more than this for this record yeah as much as it's about the people it's also a cracking marketing plan as well isn't it because it was it's basically so <laughs> yeah everybody could afford it so they bought it yeah and, uh, and and it was deep in album culture at that point yeah but like you say you'd probably have to save a month's money to get an album yeah and therefore, if you got one wrong as well, people would try and swap albums. Yeah. You know, it got really kind of like a sort of a, a culture of swapping yeah. things if you got if if they didn't quite suit you. And I ended up with some brilliant albums that yeah. way. Uh, one of them being this this album that I've chosen the best intro from, which is "Birds of Fire" by yeah. the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And and uh, yeah, it's such a strange title for a band yeah. from the word go and. Um, you picked up all kinds of kind of spiritual vibes off the album covers because it had like poems by the guy's guru on yeah. it and things. And uh, but when you listen to it, it wasn't all about peace and love. This album, it's really complex, violent music yeah. that that takes all these sort of um, twists and turns. So the track I've chosen is one word, which is the first track on side two of Birds of Fire. And it starts with this ominous drum roll. And the, the drummer is Billy Cobham on this album. Okay. Who's just an insane technician. It's like his, his abilities are, you know, uh, unquestionably sort of um, very high. And, and th these things are impressive when you're 14, 15. You know? I mean, the speed of the drumming is ridiculous, isn't yeah. it? It's and all the accuracy it, yeah. and, and, and the complexity of the way he breaks up rhythms. Because none, none of the music is in anything like 4-4 four, four particularly. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned them strange time signatures yeah. earlier on in this chat, I was just thinking that's definitely prevalent in, in this track. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the whole thing leads to a drum solo, basically, yeah. in this track. But um, the opening is, um, you know, as I say, it, it sweeps in really ominously and then breaks into all these complex fireworks in, in order just to land on a plateau of this beautiful groove by yeah. the bass player. And uh, as I say, it's just, it's just like storytelling. Mm. And, um, and then the intensity of the track leads to all this insane soloing at the end. But then uh, 
the opening is almost like a track in itself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it just leads, led me to believe that, you know, uh, that thing of songwriting of like, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, you know, I've never been interested in, in that, that side of music because I, I came to music in a very, um, it's almost symphonic. Yeah. I mean, they, they use the word orchestra in the title yeah. of the band, but um, it really is. It comes from, if having led a lifetime of listening to their music, you, you come to understand it's come from things like Stravinsky and, yeah. um, you know, serious composers and, and it's serious musicians yeah. that are, are, are testing their their metal. You're not going to have first chorus, middle eight chorus in grinding you if your entry point in the music's Faust. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. not going to no, happen. No, it's collage, it's pop yeah. art. It's, yeah. it's, and uh, in a way, when we got to start using samplers, yeah, uh, it was very already very informed by things like Faust tapes, you know, yeah, which is a music concrete. Mm kind of um approach yeah yeah so to us samplers were like hey we can do this yeah and that. yeah and, you know it was like you know this brilliant machine that yeah. arrived at the end of the 80s yeah and the same with computers as well you know all, all of a sudden you could freeze time with computers and and maybe being a bit slow musically you know i wouldn't say i my um my musical skills are, are quite honed now yeah. but you know back then um, we were just doing what we could do with that technology. You know, it was quite dumb some of yeah. the times. But that's but the most, that, that's kind of beautiful about a lot of house music. Yeah. All my favourite house music records have, a, have a, a slightly idiotic quality, a slightly alienated and... Um, well, it's, it's punk, right? Yeah. It's, there, it's there, DIY. There's an element, there's yeah. a, there's an element of um, attitude over technique. Yeah that came with house music yeah. that that was there in punk in the days of DIY, which mm. is another place where I started, you know, because we were doing, um, the, the proggy music, but in 1977, there was this huge revolution. So that was immediately sort of split between that and the raw energy of punk. And I found myself in this area called post punk. Though it wasn't called that at the time. We never labelled any of these things mm. at the time. It was just the music that was on the streets at that point. So I, I, one of those would have been Joy Division, I imagine, being in Manchester at this point. Yeah, um, my friend who we were in a, a band, uh, a couple of bands in a basement in Manchester, and one of my friends uh, started a band called Crispy Ambulance who were got signed up by Factory Records. And my friend Alan, he stood in for Ian Curtis a few times when when um, he was ill, and it's in that film that there's like a riot in a gig in yeah, Bay, yeah, yeah, and this guy gets up to sing kind of thing, and yeah. uh, that's my friend Alan that, oh, that did really? that. You know? So he was hanging around Joy Division and playing. We were on the dole together for about ten years, and he was mm. always playing. Joy Division and Throbbing Gristle Records in the grey afternoons in yeah. Manchester. It used to send me mental, you know, because... I couldn't me, picture me, anything more bleak. Yeah. <laughs> to me, music's always been about a kind of, you know, uh, somewhere to escape to yeah. rather than... Um, rather than painting a portrait of of your bleak existence. Yeah, that's you know. pure Mike Lee kitchen sink kind yeah. of... Uh, yeah. So, you know, people have different attitudes to what they want from music. Yeah. Uh, he did, however, take me to a Joy Division gig at a place called the Osborne Club in Manchester. 
and I definitely experienced the magic of what they were like live. Yeah. Incredibly shamanistic and um, goosebumpily, yeah. you know, powerful. Um, but I still never listened to the records. <laughs> but that, that kind of shaman type, I, I guess you'd get that from a lot of prog music as well, though, in the performance of, of a lot of those big prog bands as well, right? Oh, yeah, totally. You know, my, my first gig, uh, proper gig I ever went to was Hawkwind. Right. Uh, in probably 1973, I think. And it still had Lemmy and uh, yeah. Stacia, the dancer, mm -hmm. and Nick Turner. And it was transcendent as a gig. You know, it was so loud. I'd never heard anything as physically loud as yeah. that. And I'd never experienced all the light show thing. Sure. It was just an assault on the senses that, yeah. that as, a, as a teenager, was just, um, you know, this was like going to another planet you know yeah. it, was, it was you know it was called space rock but you felt like you'd been on you'd been on a trip around the solar yeah. system when you when you'd been to see a gig like that you know well let's 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 kind of sort of keep it to the early years at the moment because for track two uh, graham if i can ask you to say the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you yeah, the first song uh, I can, rem if I go way, way back in my early memories, again, it relates to space rock, but very, very indirectly. Mm. But I went to uh, work with my dad one day. I must have been about three or four. And, and it was, uh, I'm not quite sure why. My mum must have had to go and do something. I went to work with my dad and he took me to a place called Joe Lyon's Tea Room. And they had a big jukebox in there and I can remember okay. the pattern on the jukebox really vividly and this sensation of what must have been bass yeah because growing up in the 60s all the playback systems were rubbish weren't yeah it? of course you know we had I think we had a sort of 78 wind-up record player yeah. which is we considered a bit of a joke at the time yeah and we had a dancette kind of record yeah. player where the speaker is like, you know, probably about three inches and yeah. an, o an oval shape, three inches. No, no bass in it, no definition in yeah. it. So you went in somewhere like a jukebox was just a, this, you know, it was like, what is this noise? Yeah. You know, and why is it vibrating my body? And, you know. Uh, and how old would you have been then? About three or four. You know. It's crazy. You can still picture that jukebox, isn't it? Yeah, and it's the it's the pattern on the jukebox yeah. that goes with the music. Yeah. It's really stuck to it, and uh, this sense of this electronic vibe to the music because yeah. it's like this. Um, what is the instrument? It's a clavioline or something. Yeah. I thought it was an organ. I've always thought it was an organ, but it's yeah. not. It's a it's a, a monophonic synthesizer from the nineteen fifties. Yeah. It's very pokey and it's yeah. very, it's uh, space age. Yeah. And of course, I was growing up at that point, what, some of the only things you watched on TV were world events. So I can remember World Cup 1966, Winston Churchill's funeral, mm. and rockets being sent off, Gemini right. rockets. I can, again, patterns on things, patterns on the rockets of those kind of decals on the rockets. Yeah. And that's, those are my earliest memories. So, um, this idea that this music was about space as well followed me around for uh, through my childhood. I was, um, you know, quite obsessed with this noise and instrumental music. The other place where you could hear bass was the cinema. Yeah, and uh, you would go there with your with your mum in the afternoon sometimes, and there'd be this sense of bass again coming through the 
big speakers yeah. at the cinema and they would play shadows tunes in yeah. the interludes things like apache yeah where the bass really shook your yeah. chest and and uh and the music was about melody and yeah but reverberant, you know, yeah. everything was like soaked in reverb. And yeah. it was like, what is this place? Yeah. I want to keep going to that place. Yeah. Know? And that's, in a way, still lives in 808's music now, I think. I mean, you chose, uh, I should say it was uh, Telstar. Telstar, yeah. Uh, which, which was the number one, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it was the number one in America. Oh, really? As well, you know. So that that's pretty crazy for a producer that used to make... Um, Records above a shoe shop, yeah. somewhere around here, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 It's a crazy story, story as well. It's yeah, very interesting. There was um, a film called Telstar That's that right. tells the story yeah. of it. And before it was a film, it was a play. Oh, really? And yeah, it was on at the Opera House in Manchester, and uh, the the seat it was on for about uh, six weeks. And I, oh, I must go and see it, I must go and see it. And one day, it was the last day, and I had to take my son, who was about three. At that yeah. time, actually, the, the circle was complete. Yeah. But then I forgot, at the end of it, it was he kills his landlady, doesn't yeah. it? You know, so it wasn't exactly like uh, the kid's pantomime. Yeah. It all taken a tragic <laughs> end. And all kinds of subplots. And it had a lot of Coronation Street stars in it that really confused my son as well. Yeah. It's like, they snuffed the deli. <laughs> <laughs> and we were sat with Coronation Street stars. So yeah, it was a very, very weird day. But uh, sonically, yeah. it's a crazy record, though, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, all his records are, yeah. have this compressed yeah. sound and uh, using unusual um, yeah. tonalities and instruments, always soaked in reverb. Yeah, you remember that tune, Johnny, remember me, mm -hmm. kind of thing. That's uh, John Layton, isn't it? Where mm -hmm. he's uh, it's the most reverb you can put on a voice ever. That's you know? a wonderful record, though. Yeah. It sounds like somebody at the bottom of a very deep <laughs> steel well. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous uh, so producer. When I asked you to, to tell me the record that affected you emotionally, how did that, what emotion did that sort of trigger in you then? What was the emotion that you got from that? Uh, I think it was just a sense that there was somewhere to go in your head. You know, and and that music wasn't just about audio. Music was about vibration. Right. You know, I really think, you know, I mean, I obviously didn't think that when I was a kid, but yeah. that, thinking about it now, it was like, why do I feel funny? And and then music was this search for how do I feel funny again? Yeah. You know, um, when I say funny, just the strange otherness yeah. that there was perhaps... You know, when you think about it now, it's like there are other dimensions. Yeah. You know, and you had a sense of that really early on. And um, you also got it through drawing. And, you know, imagination was really a currency throughout the 60s, you know, with all the sort of flower power thing. Sure. And um, all the music was shrouded in this idea of imagination and transcendence, you know, to, to, to get you out of this, this mundane world into a different place was an important idea. And particularly when you lived in um, Manchester in the 60s, being a very grey... I did live in the black and white age, you know. Everything was kind of grey and soot-covered and foggy. And But everything you've just said then about that escapism and, 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 and what you're escaping to and things, like, you know, uh, 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 of that era, then I'm, I'm sure we'll pick up on it 
a little bit later, but surely that could be said for maybe what happened again in Manchester around 88, 89. Yeah, totally, yeah. yeah. Because, again, it was this feeling of um, uh, a lack of power in your position, you know, a a sense of being overlooked um, and music being self-empowering. Yeah. And music being a door to a community. Yeah. You know, I remember thinking before that rave thing, you used to look at all the hip hop stuff. Yeah. And you used to see, you know, people gathering in parks in New York with sound systems. Yeah. And this idea kept um, being a nugget in your head yeah. going when you were wandering around Manchester and go, that would be a good place. Could have a good block party there. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be a good place. And yeah. The, the, that idea. And, um, they had these people from On You Sound used to come to Manchester, yeah. uh, Adrian Sherwood yeah. and uh, Gary Clayle. Then used to they used to do a sound system, which was just basically um, like a reggae sound system, and they played their own music on cassettes. That was an important seed of an idea. So when we first did A to Eight State, we were a group of hip hop acts called the Hit Squad MCR, mm-hmm. and we were like you know maybe it's about fourteen of us used to set up these gigs and uh, just do rap and technology. And one of those groups was called the Scratch Beat Masters, and that was a guy called Gerald and MC Tunes. They mm-hmm. were a group. And uh, there was various groups um, that we used to get in a minibus and go and play places like Wrexham Football Supporters Club. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, Liverpool University yeah. and... Gradually, we used to play Acid House at the end of these events because we had the technology. We had the 808 drum machine, yeah. the 303, the 101 synthesizers, all these cheap technology um, instruments that that you could make house music with. And once we heard Acid House and its kind of uh, abstract nature, it was it felt like I could wear those clothes. Yeah, know? I could I could uh, tie tie a flag to that mast. Yeah, and and then we got it completely wrong and formed uk acid house is completely different isn't it yeah john peel used to um, play our first attempt at it and that almost caused a bit of a uk um pockets of the uk really picked up on it and saw it as something new rather than an imitation of the american stuff. yeah so well we'll pick back up on that when when we when we move forward a little bit because I'm, I've, I've got a lot of questions uh around that era yeah um, but let's just take you back to school quickly for the uh, track three, which is the song that reminds you of your time at school. And your yeah. answer that you said to me was, I've got so many. Yeah, totally. But I, I guess uh, one thread that runs through my school days is David Bowie, um, because it ran through a lot of my friends' um, teenage years. And what he brought to the table was more than music. He brought ideas and books and um, um, you know, it was kind of like art school for people that couldn't go Completely. to art school. You know, it, it pointed the way to various things yeah. that you could explore. And one of them uh, in this track, uh, which is Aladdin Sane, the title track of the album, mm-hmm. Aladdin Sane, um, pointed me towards jazz. And I, I didn't know what jazz was. You know, to me, jazz was something on Pebble Mill at one, uh, Kenny Ball or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, something very trad or something yeah. on Morecambe and Wise. Yeah, or, Cleo Lane on Morecambe and yeah, Wise. Yeah, <laughs> the BBC version of jazz was very um, purified, wasn't it? 
Oscar Peterson was always on the BBC in, in the 70s, and he's amazing, but, and he did some really good educational programmes. But gradually, I've, I kept gravitating to, mm. to jazz. I don't know what it was. But this track has this amazing piano solo. The most uh, abstract thing I could think of back then was... Um, who, who's the keyboard player from um, David Bowie's band in the 70s? Not too sure. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, so I'll get my wrist slapped for this. Uh, but yeah, this 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 music that came out of that album, it had this romantic quality. It had um, this uh, decadence to it that really hit my teenage brain. And um, then I was searching for more of that. Um, but at, at what, what, searching for more Bowie or searching for more sort decadence of, in music. Right. You know, okay. And, and it was just sort of like, where does this come from? And then you start digging and yeah. and, and going like um, record collecting was like that, wasn't it? You, mm. You'd find one guy on a record and then you'd find him on another record, and it was exploratory. It's not like you could go to the internet back then yeah. and flick through things. Yeah. You, you had to do it by word of mouth or or simply by looking at the yeah. writing on the back of records. Yeah. Um, um, and the other thing I remember about um, those summers back then of like, you know, when David Bowie's records came out, they were an event and we used to gather around a record player in the street to listen to them. You know. Would that almost be to sort of see who he'd pretty much reinvented himself yeah, as? these reinventions uh, were, yeah. were, were cultural events. And not just visually, musically as yeah, well. Musically, like, yeah. yeah. I remember, you know, for instance, Diamond Dogs, that coming out and, and what a cover yeah that all the covers were controversial mm. you know my mother used to have a heart attack over yeah. most of them you know particularly aladdin saying where there's you know yeah there's uh, there's two versions there's a cleaned up version and, and the non-cleaned up version of the gatefold mm. and my brother had the non-cleaned up version of the gatefold on his bedroom wall and, <laughs> and yeah there was all kinds of horror um going on there and the same with the diamond dogs and uh, but it was just the this introduction of atonal music yeah. into pop music. There's some great atonal uh, pieces in Diamond Dogs, as is this this one I've chosen. Yeah. Aladdin saying it, it it's not sticking to the rules of like you you're in this key, play yeah. the notes in this key. It, it's like it's these clashes and um, color. You know, music is kind of texture and color and and how you paint, uh, paint a scene. And it's very dystopian kind of music as well. This, this sense of the world ending yeah. back then was very real. Yeah. Um, you know, um, the, the atomic threat was like pumped into you on, yeah. uh, on a daily basis at, uh, in, in school and through the TV. TV was always, uh, you know, growing up at that time was Vietnam War and, you know, Cold War and, you know, this sense of the, the world is on a knife edge. Yeah. Uh, and this music soundtracked it perfectly, you know. It, it acknowledged it and it almost put, it was kind of comforting at the same yeah. time, you know. Hello, I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is the songs that we're talking about in this podcast... If we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And search off the beat and track podcast and you can listen to all the songs because i put playlists up for each of these if you can't find it on there i'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode so you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks anyway i'll shut up get back to the podcast see you on the other side she messing around with music at school um, I had a difficult time with music at school in that the conventions of learning it properly at school were uh, I didn't I didn't really meet with them, so we had that like alternative breakout lunch times where, where we were doing improvisation in yeah in in uh, Faust was never going to be on the curriculum no, was it, it? <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't on the curriculum back then but I really wanted to learn an instrument I yeah. got an electric violin. Wow. From, from uh, a small ad in Virgin Records. It's like, uh, this is going to be my instrument. Largely yeah. through listening to things like Mahavishnu Orchestra and yeah. Sean Luke Ponty. And I was like, I love this sound. Yeah. I love this instrument, you know. That's crazy music for a young man to be listening to at school. Yeah, but it wasn't so much there. Lots of people did. Yeah, I guess you know. the same what you're saying about the, the that, cheapness the, of it. And uh, this concept of the, the hardest man at school, the cock of the school, kind yeah. of thing, was this huge tall guy who um, was really into David Bowie and Lou Reed and he was, yeah. had very chiseled cheekbones and, and it, he just carried himself with this enormous air, protected me once from these sort of dinner ticket bullies yeah. because he'd seen me at a Marvish New Orchestra concert <laughs> and I carried, I carried the right records, you know, oh, and brilliant. I was under his wing from that point onwards. You know? Excellent. And, you know, he was sort of like, you know... He loved the Mahavishnu yeah. Orchestra, and that was cool in my book, you know. So, yeah, learning the electric violin was uh, probably quite torturous for my neighbours yeah. um, because I had quite a nice amplifier, <laughs> quite a loud amplifier for it. Had you found other sort of people at school that were like-minded that wanted to make music and experiment with sound and stuff like that? Yeah, there was one guy in particular, um, a guy called Colin Seddon, who um, wore a Black Sabbath cross and... Uh, 
uh, carried a fretless bass around with him. And Brilliant. he was in the school play. Yeah. And somehow took over the school play with his fabulous fretless bass playing. <laughs> and we, we, we clicked and he was like, uh, yeah, he had the Camembert Electric album. And he had a, uh, that, that's when I joined his band and we were doing uh, gong cover versions. Yeah. Our first gig was the Queen's Silver Jubilee um, street parties in uh, where we lived. Yeah. And we did three that day playing gong cover versions <laughs> to uh, old ladies in the street <laughs> with their triangle sandwiches and, oh, fantastic. and, and jellies. Yeah, that was there. <laughs> and I think we actually, because uh, God Save the Queen was number one at that point as yeah. well, we actually did a Sex Pistols cover as well. Brilliant. Yeah, so, yeah. On the fretless bass. Yeah, definitely on the fretless bass. Yeah. <laughs> All right, track four, Graham. Um, the first song that you remember buying from a record store. Yeah, me and my, I'm, I'm one of uh, four brothers. And um, my brothers, we took it in turns once a month to buy a single from the department store in Manchester. And I can remember the first one I actually chose myself um, was the music to 633 Squadron that we'd just seen at the cinema. <laughs> and that's like a war movie theme. And it's by uh, Ron Goodwin. Yeah. And the, uh, for, for listeners, the, the minute you hear it, you'll recognise it. It's a very famous probably, piece of music, I don't know whether it's it? fallen out the, the culture. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the first albums I bought, actually, was an MFP, Music for Pleasure, uh, used to get in the supermarket, of great war movie themes. Brilliant. And it was on that as well. Yeah. And um, you forget how um, near to World War II we were growing up in the 60s. You know, the, the hangover from all that culture, all the boys' comics and all the toys and things, yeah. were all still about uh, victory and the war and the American war machine, wasn't it? So uh, war music, uh, war games were prevalent when we were kids running around in, mm. in you know, wasteland and playing games. So this this, this music kind of sound, soundtrack that, that kind of, war, you yeah. know, a very male view of the world kind of thing. Well, uh, I, I think something about this music as well is, is, is it's very descriptive. You know, when you see it in the film, mm. um, you can actually hear all the dog fights and, and the drama. Yeah. And there's almost like a love theme that comes in on, uh, in parts as yeah. well, you know. It's just like a film in a piece of music. Yeah. It's so descriptive. And uh, that was an interesting idea when I was a kid, you know, I just thought, oh, music is visual. So that, that's, that's what, I th you know, later on I used to do a guitar karaoke version of it um, where I'd, I'd just play to the record as part of a show that I was doing called Beach Surgeon back in the early 80s. And we used to play that music and play the heavy metal guitar over the top of it kind of thing. And... Uh, I loved it so much, that piece of music. Yeah. You, you touched on something a minute ago where you said, like, you, you know, you, you could almost see it, mm. like the music. Like, and this is something that I've, I've mentioned a couple of times with, with, with guests that I've had on here, that um, when I used to make music and stuff like that, I, I, I could picture it. Yeah. And, like, is, is that something that you've, you, you've carried to, to date? Yeah, I think, I think so, yeah. yeah. It, it's... Um, I'm not one of those people that sees colours or something yeah. when, when, you, when you hear certain sounds, but I think there is a, an urge 
to picture music before you make it. Yeah. Or, or you'll arrive at some motif when you're making music that conjures up an image where you know where how to colour it in and how to exactly. build it into a bigger scene. You yeah. Know? So I always think in terms of landscapes uh, in music. Yeah. Because we're primarily instrumental music. I don't think how to, how to deliver a song. I think, you know, how to deliver a place you can um, lounge in. Mm. I love a lot of, actually, talking of lounge, I love a lot of uh, easy listening kind of music. But, um, you know, people often go, oh, that's Space Age bachelor pad music. To me, it's more serious than that. Yeah. You know, it's more... Some of the great musicians pass through that easy listening yeah. uh, phase, one of them being Les Baxter, who was uh, a Hollywood um, string arranger, band arranger, who did amazing things with uh, percussion, Cuban percussion, and he had a great knowledge of uh, world music. But this was in the in 50s Hollywood when there was a big budget and big orchestras mm. and big places to he recorded at the Capitol Studios, which has a fabulous reverb sound to it. You can buy that as a plug-in now, actually, <laughs> which is totally exciting because oh, it's like a room. When you hear a room and it's on uh, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, yeah. it's on all those Frank Sinatra albums uh, from the Capitol years. Wow. Um, it's on all these Les Baxter records, and it's like that, it's a, an imprint of a room. Uh, and they used to have a car park uh, that they sent the music to, uh, like a... A reverb chamber in the concrete car park and that's that's the sound of those records and wow yeah and now you can buy it as a plug-in for your computer it's even better <laughs> technology's great okay so moving on to track five which is a song that soundtrack to your years in clubland yeah I'm, I'm amazingly unaffected by clubland you know i mean it's not like a music that I um, sit around listening to, really. But um, I would say I've been DJing for you know over thirty years, kind of thing. And one of the records that never has never left my box is um, by a band called Psychotropic. I've got maybe four records by Psychotropic. I know nothing about them. I believe they're from London. Mm -hmm. And they just managed to be the second wave of um, techno, in a way. Um, they had the futurism of, of original Detroit techno, and that's what I really loved about mm. when I first heard Derek May, the Belleville Three, you know, yeah. Derek May and wow. Juan Atkins and Kevin Saunderson. They had this sense of futurism that Kraftwerk had, yeah. but in a, in a new way in an Americanized way. Yeah. And um, Psychotropic have it too. You know, they know um, just to um, keep the sounds to a minimum but make them sounds really important. They're yeah. really day-glow sounds. Yeah. And they introduce really good breakbeats to that music yeah. whereby it, it never fails on a dance floor. They're really um, purposeful uh, dance music. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was just... Uh, I still play them now. Uh, but there was so much club music, it's hard to pinpoint anything, really, yeah. you know, because it just seemed to be uh, overwhel like an overwhelming ocean of music at times. It's, it's really strange that you, you, know, you, you chose an artist that, as far as you're aware, is, is from London, because as, as, as someone that hit 17 
1989. Mm. My, my whole focus as a DJ and as a musician was not at London. I was, I was looking up at where you're from. Oh, right, okay. And, and everything down here was looking up there. And, right. you know, and, and I just... I just love to just kind of get your your your, your take on what that that felt like because obviously 808 was exploding everywhere and you know it was it was music that was was was, was huge for us down here and, yeah. well, and, we, and we, just we, that whole moment of, of of you know at the end of the things that we see as sort of mythical was it as was it like that was it oh hell know, yeah yeah it was <laughs> yeah it was you know so visceral and so um you did feel like you were at the center of the universe and there was no better place you could even get on a plane to yeah than manchester at that point in time people were getting on planes and coming over from yeah. all over the world and you'd meet uh your mu- musical american musical heroes would be in your club yeah you know? and that that was uh, an amazing moment um but also th- Early on in that acid house thing, there was a bit of a north-south banter going on, largely in the music press, largely mm. things like ID magazine and Face magazine, yeah. as to where this music had its origins and where where the important clubs were, you know. Yeah. And you you can imagine us northerners getting really shirty about the fact that <laughs> you know, uh, the Face magazine thought it was running the world, but yeah. it, it turns out a lot of the journalists from the Face magazine were in Manchester anyway. Of you course. Know, so, and uh, I actually knew some of them, you know, I just didn't know they were writing yeah. for that thing at the time. And, um, but we were down in London all the time uh, at that period. Uh, there was people that were trying to manage us back then who were, and uh, there's one guy who ran a record lab called Mr. Modo. And we put some records out under a different name called the Lounge Jays on Mr. Modo's label. And he managed the Orb. And, um, and he used to take us down to the KLF house. And, uh, 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 you know, this would be like 88, 89. What's the of. KLF house? They lived in the house in uh, Brixton. and Both of them? Uh, well, they had a the studio there. Right. And they had the police car in the living room. Fuck <laughs> off. Yeah. Well, no, I don't know why I sound surprised. That's completely KLF, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, and it's like, how did they get that in? It's like a ship in a bottle. Yeah. You know, it's like and so as as electronic doing what you said at that time, had you were already, and I guess you know you mentioned the orb there, but had um, a chill out and space been on on the on the playlist for you guys at this point? Were, were they albums that you 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 know? Yeah, it was an idea that kind of came in with that um, the chill out album. Yeah. You know, it's like we noticed that they'd actually sampled us in it. It was the first time somebody had sampled yeah. us. And there was a sort of sample karma back there, which you couldn't really call it, could yeah. you? You know what I mean? Um, but it, it was almost like an honour to be included yeah. in that thing, you know. But it also sampled things like Steve Hillich, on yeah. which I was like very versed in yeah. things like Rainbow Dome music. And, yeah. You know, it was something from 10 years ago. And, yeah. you know, so they, they were a similar age to me and, and been on a similar journey through the So was he doing, was he doing System 7 then? Was it System 7? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He started to do System 7. And that was through Alex Patterson of the mm. Orb and... You know, meeting Alex and and youth from Killing Joke. Yeah. You know, the, these were people I had a lot in common with in terms of a mu- musical journey. And uh, I've got some. I've got a cassette at home of Little Fluffy Clouds as a demo from that from one, really? one visit to Putney, where he li- where they were doing a little bedroom studio. Wow. 
I've, I've got little fluffy clouds as a cassette from that. And with the Ricky Lee Jones yeah, vocal yeah. on it? With, yeah, with just handwritten cassette, you know. Amazing. I've got so many mad cassettes. We were going through them recently for somebody who was doing a, a project on, uh, you know, cassettes that have survived kind of yeah. thing. And yeah, I've got all kinds of museum pieces on cassette um, from that era. But yeah, we, we were we used to hang out in studios and s talk about music and, and you know, we were trying to do like a, f there's always been a fight, fake rivalry between 808 and KLF, you know, there's a couple of music videos where uh, Last Train to Transcend Central there's an 808 kind of banner as the train goes past kind of thing. Oh really? And then in our videos we have little KLF stickers going past in ours and we, we were going to do a big sound clash in uh, at Jodrell Bank actually. Uh, the big radio telescope in Manchester. We had some meetings about doing that back in the early 90s, but um, uh, I think that was a point when they were winding things down a little yeah. bit. So, yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah was, there was a sense of the the whole country coming together over rave, though. You know, the amount of travelling we did and the friendliness of all the events that you went to. Yeah. Of course, everyone was hugging each other. Yeah. And, uh, you know, due to the atmosphere back then, you know. Yeah. Like, and, and you'd end up at all these kind of events and break them barriers down, you know. There used to be rivalry between Manchester and Liverpool and that, that all kind of um, dissolved into a love fest. And, yeah. you know, uh, Manchester-Glasgow was always a great alliance mm. and we'd be up, the, up in Glasgow all the time doing events up there. And, you know, the whole country came together over rave. You know, before that, uh, there was, you know, a lot of colloquialism, really. You know. it, it really felt like it. And... And, and growing up in Essex, like it, there was a lot going on around the M25. Oh, there was there, there was plenty of things. Sort of, but for me, I don't know. It, it, it just seemed. I, I guess grass is always greener, isn't it? And you, you, you know, but for us, it was like we wanted to get to Manchester. We wanted to go and see what was, was going on there. You know, yeah, it's it amazing like, the university intake around those years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Loads of people went and did all kinds of courses they had no idea about just to be there. Brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. Uh, and it's a big university town, of course. You know, we haven't got four universities there. So, as, as someone. Uh, would you say you're a clubber, or would you say you, you know, you as a DJ, or you know, would would you quite happily go to a club just to to have a drink and have a dance and? Yeah, certainly in those back in those days, yeah. you know, I was out. Um, the the thing I learnt around those days was sound engineering. There was a course in Manchester called the School of Sound Recording. It was one of the first recording courses in the country, and I, I took that course. And then immediately got a job as a sound engineer at a club called The Boardwalk in Manchester, which was literally a few hundred yards away from the Hacienda. So I'd be finishing work and going directly to the Hacienda every night. And I had to get in free card to the Hacienda because I was on factory records with my band Biting Tongues. So I had a, a, a get in free pass. So I, I lived there, you know. You still got it? Yeah. And I, I lived there for years before the rave thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, all those years when it was empty and full of industrial bands yeah. and um, experiments. I remember one of the first big electronic gigs we went to there was Mantronics. Wow. Which uh, I had no idea it was that big. I knew, you know, amongst my friends, it was like a nice little yeah. vibe. 
You know, so was this club? Was you into hip hop at this point? Like, yeah, I was. I wouldn't say I was. I wasn't a hip hop obsessive. I was more into the stuff that didn't have the rapping on, like yeah. the electro. Yeah. The electro uh, street sounds compilations yeah, yeah. and all that kind of thing uh, was stuff that I had in. I, I ran a cafe in Manchester at that point, and the soundtrack was those street sounds yeah. electro uh, records. What incredible bits of art them sleeves were as well. Yeah, and there was a sense of. Um, curation to them that was oddly British as well. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. There was a guy in Manchester that, that helped with the UK one. Remember there was one with the Union Jack on yeah. that was sort of British electro. And one of the guys in Manchester had got like had worked on two of the tracks on that. Right. That that we knew and he he, he used to work for Martin Hannett, the producer. And round his house, he had the 808, the 303, the 101, all that technology, maybe in about 82, 83. Wow. So that technology wasn't suddenly like 1988. And yeah. Hey, it was something that we'd lived around a little bit and dabbled with yeah. uh, throughout the, the early to mid-80s, you know, so that... And he used to do little gigs with all that equipment as well. He was called Yak Boy. Brilliant. And he used to support biting tongues. So there was a sense of that uh, one-man electronic band thing that yeah. was knocking about. And it was in pop, wasn't it? Yeah. So much electronic music was around in pop. Vince Clark and mm. Depeche Mode and Human League and yeah. all these. Uh, was, that, was that interesting you as well? Yeah, I saw Human League really early on. And, you know, it was... Uh, the electronic side of things always interested me, yeah. The first electronic band I did see was Tangerine Dream in wow. 1974. And the idea of a fully electronic band with banks of equipment, that's where that seed entered my head. There's still elements of the prog there, oh, yeah. I guess, yeah. It's very much the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that album Rubicon that they were touring mm. at that point is still an amazing piece of music. Mm. And, uh, you know, fits into any ambient DJ's yeah. catalogue now. You know, yeah. they did some classic stuff. They did a lot of stuff, and a lot of it I can't listen to. Yeah. But uh, some of their um, masterpieces are, are truly uh, inspirational and, and live up here in the yeah. head now, you know. And so, Biting Tongues... I mean, I'll tell you what, let's hold that because we will get on to them yeah. uh, shortly. So let's, let's go to track six then, which is um, a favourite song from an artist from your home county. Yeah, what is my home county is Lancashire then, isn't it? I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Well, Manchester being uh, this big musical community, I've chosen um, a band called Home Life, who uh, I'm cheating a bit because I was in this band, but it... I don't. I wasn't steering this band. I was a musician um, in the band, but uh, it was my friend's band, Paddy Steer, and uh, another guy called Simon King, uh, who put this band together. And uh, it was a mini orchestra. It's, it's at a point when you could start recording larger things on computers when Pro Tools came in yeah. and that kind of thing, and the audio could you could actually record a whole album on a computer yeah. rather than um, a combination of computer and tape. And uh, in this very tiny attic in a, in a terraced house, my friend Paddy started assembling this record and he got some really good... Uh, he met these people from the Royal Northern College of Music who were serious uh, studying strings and uh, operatic vocals and... 
all kinds of uh, decent trained musicians and bringing them to this thing that was essentially like a hip hop vibe. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these records came out on Ninja Tunes, so it was that period of uh, what did they call that music back then? There's another label. I'd, um, Moax was the other. Yeah, the, that kind of thing. Like a trip hoppy yeah, kind of was, vibe. Yeah. That, that era. But again, we never called it that. Yeah. Um, so it was very laid back, and, and, and he assembled like a, an orchestra one by one in a, in, a, in a tiny attic, you know, one person at a time. Yeah. And, and what came out of it is this beautiful orchestral, uh, chilled out music, uh, so colourful. Again, it's that, that lands, landscape kind of music. Yeah. And uh, he's, he's a person that I recognise has a similar thinking um, style to mine. That's why we've been in many, many projects together. And we barely talk about music, but when we get together to play music, it's understood, you know. It's like one of those people where yeah. you don't even have to talk about it. It's just kind of, it's understood. That's yeah. magical though, isn't it? If yeah. that can happen, that's, that's, that's special, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's about what you listen to and, yeah. and this record collections that overlap in Venn diagrams, you know. Yeah. And it's a different personality to me. I'm quite... Um, you know, I will drive things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm often kind of leading projects and it's unusual for me not to lead. I, I love being in projects where I'm left to be a musician. Yeah. I've been doing a number recently where, where I just turn up with an instrument and that's so liberating for me because yeah. I hate organising things, but yeah. I am a natural organiser. Yeah. So um, that's my role in this band. And anyway, this piece of music just popped up on these albums and I find it so fascinating. I can't understand how the rhythm works or where the opulence in the, the orchestration ends. You know, there's like points where he's recorded some bees on his holiday in Greece <laughs> and he plays these melodies on these bee sounds that, that, that melt into the strings and things. And it's just, uh, it's like a European abstract painting. Yeah. You know, I, I just, I just, I could listen to it over and over and over again. It's called Wanderly. Uh, however, it's wrongly labelled, if you're looking on Spotify and YouTube, as Too Fast. Uh, you remember when people used to put hidden tracks on yeah. CDs? Yeah, something went wrong with the hidden track and yeah. somebody labelled it wrong. Well, I've, 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 I took that on board, so um, yeah. the, 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 it is the track that... Um, yeah, it's called Too Fast. ...that Graham's talking about on the playlist. Yeah. Okay, so... For the final track, it's the song that many may not know that yeah. you would like them to hear. Yeah, I'm always banging on about the, the band I was in for 10 years uh, called Biting Tongues. I was in that band from uh, 1978 to 1988. And uh, it was uh, music of a... I just fell in with these musicians, one of them being that guy who played the fretless bass at school was in this band. So me and him carried on to this new band, which was full of older people. I really liked being the youngest member of this band because, again, it's a different perspective in music. And, uh, you know, the, these older guys that had uh, formed their musical identity in different ways and, and brought them all to the table in a very... Uh, they clashed in an interesting way. And it... And it, it made me think that, you know, 90% of music is chemistry. You know, who you put in a room is incredibly important. Yeah. 
uh, and not to and how to be an individual within music and just own your own your stuff, you know. Uh, own your ideas and just uh, chisel chisel away at them. Yeah. Um, I think music, the music world that I come across these days in the you know the millennials and everything, everyone can do everything. Everyone is amazing. You know, skill levels have gone through the roof. Um, you know, and you see videos of amazing all the time, don't you? Like some five-year-old child in India playing Chopin yeah. or something, and it's just all like, whoa, overwhelmed by amazing. Yeah. But amazing isn't the thing that, that gets you to great art in music, I don't think. I think uh, there's certain points in culture, <coughs> skill sets, and collisions that make great music. And uh, I, I just uh, experience music making on a, on a sort of daily level with these guys that, that felt so powerful. When we did a gig, we, it was like do or die, you know, that serious commitment to music where you bled music. Yeah. And this, this was like the early 80s when music was very passionate and it meant a lot. Yeah. You were railing against a lot. And it could die at any minute. It had no hope, this music. It had no commercial potential. Was you angry then? Yeah, probably. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, I, th I think you, know, you just felt like your life was going to pass. And you had to make a noise about it, you know. Was that noise being made because you thought that it might be an avenue out of where you was? No. That's what I'm saying about this music. Yeah. It had no ambition. Yeah. It was pure. It was just something you did because, like, had to. in a caveman <laughs> kind yeah. of way. Yeah. You know? It's like, it's what you did as a group of young men sat around, bored, off, bored out of their heads. Mm. You had to be bored, you know, to come up with this stuff. It, it's, uh, your imaginations were very um, fueled by that boredom, you know what I mean? To, to to wish yourself out of that situation. Your imagination had to get strong like a muscle. And, and that that's, you know, if you're surrounded by inspirational music as well, uh, which we were, you know, uh, every every week there was interesting music arriving in the record shots. One of the, Colin, the fretless bass guy again, he worked in Virgin Records, so he was accessing music coming from uh, New York and stuff all the time, you know. Things, things like um, you know the down the midtown scene of like you know James White and the Blacks or James Blood Ulmer and Decoding Society, all this American um, uh, stuff that had the energy of punk and the skill of uh, proper jazz people, and um, the avant-garde stuff, you know stuff like Talking Heads, for instance, yeah. and, and John Hassel, and the Brian Eno stuff was incredibly in, inspirational. Mm. How to make music as a non-musician was this, was this idea that fueled my position. I mean, I could barely play, you know, a tune on a guitar. I couldn't sit down and go like, I'll play you this yeah. Irish jig or something. But I could do that. Our music was like something that was born out of uh, your, your restrictions. Mm. And therefore, sonics are really important, how you got a sound out of guitar, you know. And uh, that was uh, coming from that Brian Eno school yeah. of, of music. Yeah, the whole British art school thing was, is, 
in, if you cut me in half, that that would be my musical core is the whole British art school approach to music. What inspires and drives you now? Um, it's still a bit of that, you know. It's still a sense of have you done your best music? You know, have you? Uh, what have you got to say now that you've not said before? And um, uh, technology changes that all the time. You know, every time it, the, the sound of records has changed over the years. And I would say about this new record that we've been doing, you know, that is the, it doesn't sound anything like any of the other 808 state records because the technology's changed. Of course. And the way we make records has changed. We used to make records in a very expensive way, you know, during the mid 90s, going in all those brilliant studios that you had in London and Manchester, uh, very high tech places at God knows what a day with incredible equipment and engineers, you know, that we won't make those records again. Yeah. No one's going to give us money to make those records again. And you find a different route through it, which we did going back to the end of the 70s. You know, those entering studios back then, they sound peculiar. You know, yeah. they're, they're really dry places, you know, dead rooms. And then you put all the reverb on and made imaginary spaces. And I, I love listening back to that 70s approach of, of uh, false rooms and... Um, uh, very processed music. And um, now you combine them spaces on a plug-in. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that makes you approach them in a different way. Yeah. It almost takes you back to like, well, what if I don't use any of them? You yeah. Know? And what if I just make a very tight little world? And, you know, um, you almost get bored of your own yeah. tropes in music, you know. So you, you have to keep challenging yourself that way. You have to keep destroying what you've done before yeah. almost, you know. And one of the, one of the people I guess I've learned that off most is um, the way Miles Davis used to do that. He used to learn leave everything he'd just done on fire behind his the back of his neck, didn't mm. he? You know what I mean? He was just pointing in pointing yep. in a direction. And what he left behind is an incredible legacy of yeah. experimental music that influences music today, you know. And we we in, during the 70s and 80s that's all we listened to a lot of the time yeah. it's just all them mad Miles Davis records yeah. not the cool jazz ones but they're great as well yeah. but the, the the ones that everything's got a wow wow pedal on yeah. and is dense and yeah. playing against um, chords that play against each other it sounds almost disgusting yeah <laughs> that's one of the things about this biting tongue track uh, Air care, it's called, is that um, I've noticed when we got together to play again at the ICA some 10 years after we'd stopped doing it, that every chord we ever played was a tri-chord, which is, you know, the most disgusting chord yeah. you can play. And it's like, the whole of this music is based on tri-chords. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I, no one noticed at yeah. the time. And, uh, you know, it still plays a big part in 808 States music because, um, you know, I'm always after sort of... Sometimes people are saying it's, it's very optimistic music, isn't it, your 808 State music, you know? And they're thinking about Pacific. Yeah. It's like, well, let me take you by the hand and lead yeah. you through the, disgust, <laughs> <laughs> the disgusting, discordant world of uh, some of the album tracks, yeah. you know? And it's like, um, yeah, I mean, I love... Uh, 
kind of modal music where, whereby you can wallow in yeah. something. But one of my favourite records being like uh, John Coltrane, My Favourite Things. I really love that because it's in this pretty place, you know, yeah. it's kind of it's full of sunlight and everything, but it's modulating to minor all the time. Yeah. So it doesn't get sickly. Yeah. You know, I can't stand things that are just stand in one place. You know, yeah. I like modulating into things. And it's like with food, isn't it? You know, you kind of got to have them little sour tastes. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, you've got to salt it right and yeah. things like that. You know, and music's very much like cooking, I think. You know, it's got all them. Um, you know, you have a basic vibe and then you mess with it, you know, yeah. and in order to make it tasteful and things, you know. And that that's still what we're playing with all the time you know if you can pull off a real cute tune you know yeah like an earworm where where it's like well that that'll live a long time yeah. you know and it can live uh it's interesting all these people doing things with orchestras now uh all these house, house bands doing all you know. what's your take on that uh, I think it's really there's better things to do with an orchestra mm. than than some of those things that they're doing, mm. and uh, you know, I'm not sure it's something we would ever do, but our music would totally suit orchestrating. Yeah, because the there's content there for mm. an orchestra. I watch some of those other orchestras, and they're doing practically nothing. It's yeah. like sledgehammer, acorn time, you know, and uh, you know, thinking about. Uh, melodic content and you know uh, chordal content house music you know more or less sticks to a gospel principle doesn't it yeah. well we, we've just gone over the hour so I'll, I'll, I'll start to, to, to wrap it up a little bit but talking about just listening to you talk throughout the, the, this hour pushing the sort of boundaries of, of, of what people perceive as maybe that the, your straightforward verse course is not something that you're clearly into no. and you know constantly sort of evolving and, and, and reinventing 808 state I know that I, I wanted to ask you about 1989 in Manchester because uh, selfishly it's my, my, my age yeah, yeah. bracket and but what's what's your thoughts on on nostalgia because I'm seeing lots and lots of festivals and shine weekenders which are, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. are, are, are looking for you know, for, for lots of bands from, from then to, to go and play. I just wonder what your thoughts are on, on nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, everyone's nostalgia is different, isn't it? And, and I was talking to somebody the other day who was asking a similar question, and it's like, well, there's this nostalgia for the acid thing. I was like, mate, there was nostalgia for the acid thing in 1989. <laughs> you know? Yeah. The people going like, oh, back, back to the old school yeah. in, in 1990, about 1988. You know, yeah. it's, the, like, it's just folds all the yeah. time. It folds like a Mr. Whippy ice cream yeah. coming out of one of them machines. It just constantly falls back yeah. on itself because people will have an emotional attachment to, to times and places with music. Completely. And um, I've just learned to accept that, you know. I just, it's quite difficult for a band like us to go out and start playing new music because we'll be surrounded by it. Somebody's got the babysitter in. Yeah, kind of thing. They're forty-five. They've got the jumper tucked into the jeans. Yeah, and they want to relive their bedroom of their teenage bedroom yep. fantasy of what that music meant to them. Yeah, and it's fair enough. I understand that, you know. And to a certain, are you extent, comfortable with it? Uh, to a certain extent, we will deliver. 
you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, I understand that you want this and that, and we have to play the big bangers. And I don't mind playing the big bangers because they're yeah. fun, you know. They're, yeah. They're, they're really pretty rock solid. But introducing new music is incredibly hard. Yeah. You know, it's incredibly hard for me to play it to be mates. Yeah. You know, I was like, oh, I've, just, I've got 40 new tracks. And yeah. everyone's like moving, moving backwards <laughs> out the door. You know, it's really hard. Yeah. To get anyone's attention on music, you know, you have to. It's something that people do in a dark room, yeah. on on their phone privately. Um, it's odd that, yeah. you know, uh, unless you're, uh, you know, in your twenties and you're out clubbing, and, yeah. and and then it unfolds in a different way, yeah. you know. And uh, I'm very much interested in in gathering anyone of any age group you know i think it's been interesting for us to play recently at curated events such as uh, like we did the print works in london nina kravitz presents you Amazing. know and she's picked us as a legacy band or whatever you know we keep hearing that word we're a sort of a legacy band and uh, you're right with that yeah it's all right as a platform <laughs> to deliver new stuff to people yeah. you know and because they don't know uh, all they'll know is a couple of tunes therefore yeah. they can't tell the difference between an album track from 1990 and an album track from 2019 you know yeah. it's just all all you know you just put it in a set together and yeah. you bang it across them and it's it's just got to work in that moment and so long as we're comfortable with like we've done stuff that actually works in that moment it's an amazing uh 30 year timeline that we can choose from yeah like we did 80830 last year you know and yeah, there's lots to choose from. We could probably do like a five-hour set or something, yeah. you know. Um, I think Gerald's actually out doing a five-hour set, isn't he, at the moment? Oh, really? Uh, yeah, he, but he makes it all up on the spot. You know, yeah. he's somebody that's not nostalgic at all. Yeah. You know, he's probably sick to death of Voodoo Ray. Well, yeah. it probably isn't, but, yeah. you know, but on it's the, the, it's on the, the other hand... the most he, chosen record on this uh, yeah. podcast. In, yeah, it's an incredibly important record. Yeah. And... Uh, we just went past the pizza place before, actually. <laughs> we do raise the pizza, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's nuts that these records that were really super throwaway I know. Uh, have become part of people's lives in that very Massively. intense way where, you know, we get, constantly get things where yeah. people are, you know, getting having funerals and weddings and births. And, yeah. you know, that's... that's that's an, you know, it's not an ambition we set out with, yeah. but it, it is an incredible honour to be able to um, intersect people's lives with music that way because, you know, that's were how I feel about other people's music yeah. that, that have soundtracked my life. Yeah. Uh, you know, music is almost a religion to me, you know, and, uh, you know, that's why we can't really stop yeah. uh, at this point. You know, it gets difficult. I'm sick. I'll be 60 next year. You know yeah. I mean? It's like, it's not a natural clubbing age, you know. <laughs> Um, it's however music will carry that through, you know. And the new music is uh, on October the eleventh, uh, I think. Eleventh, and the album's yeah. called um, Transmission Suite. It's named after the place we recorded it in, which is the old Granada TV studios in Manchester. Oh, really? We recorded it in this fabulous room that has eighty TVs on the wall. It looks like Mission Control Houston. It's an oh, incredibly it? inspiring room to be in for for a number of years yeah 
And under our feet uh, was a studio where um, a lot of musical first happened, like the first Sex Pistols on TV happened under our feet, the first Joy Division, uh, the, uh, even the first Beatles TV appearances were literally in this room that we were hovering above. So was that where So It Goes down there? Yeah. Yeah, oh wow. Yeah, and, and Granada not being the BBC took on all these rebels. They had yeah. people like... Um, so was that Bill Grundy as well? Yeah, like, they had right. people. No, 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 not that one. Right. Uh, Tony Wilson had them first. Yeah. yeah. On So It Goes. Wow. And, uh, you know, David Bowie first did Starman on TV in that room. Not not the BBC Top of the Pots yeah. one. Um, as I say, the Beatles did all their early TV footage is from that room. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, so it felt like we're in this weird power spot. Yeah. You know. Uh, every day going to work in there, you know, it's, it's got a vibe. Yeah. And it was like this abandoned TV centre, so it's also got a kind of space station floating in space yeah. where everyone had died. Or yeah. <laughs> all, the, all the old equipment was blinking and just sort of like no one knew how to turn it off or what it did. And oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's a very special vibe to it, you know. So we've almost dedicated the sort of record to this to this place, yeah. this point on the map. Yeah. Know? So that's why it's called that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, to hearing it, and uh, and once it's out, I will add tracks of it to the um, playlist as yeah, well. Awesome. Um, yeah. And so, uh, Graham, thank you very much. Yeah. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers. There you go. That's the end of another episode of Off the Beat and Track podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to sit down with Graham. Uh, never met him before and instantly felt very, very comfortable in his presence and obviously a fountain of knowledge uh, on on not just the Manchester music scene, but on music. And uh, and it was a, a real pleasure to be able to, to chew the fat with him. Um, I'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, uh, if you uh, get a chance, go and have a look in the back catalogue of Off The Beaten Track. Uh, there's stacks and stacks of stuff there with lots of uh, your favourite musicians and stuff. So go and get stuck in. Right, I'm out of here. I'll see you next week. Bye. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I've butted in yet again. I just want to quickly tell you about this magazine. It's called Pod Bible. Now, Pod Bible is the new essential guide to podcasts. It's put together alongside Spotify and Acast. And it's a one-stop shop to tell you all about the podcasts you maybe know about, but definitely about a load of the podcasts that you probably don't know about that we think you should know about. I mean, in the first edition, there's interviews with Adam Buxton, interviews with Craig Parkinson, um, there's features on Jade Adams, and there's just an abundance of information about so many exciting podcasts that are out there. Also, Spotify have given us these amazing little codes, so if you do get a print copy, you can just turn on your Spotify on your phone, scan the little code, and it just automatically opens up the podcast on your listening device. How good's that? If you haven't managed to get a print copy, then just go over to www.podbiblemag.com and read it online because the digital version is all over there and it's all free. So every other month there'll be a new edition out. So go and have a look and support us on the social medias as well. Podbiblemag.com. <laughs>
It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.